First, I'd like to ask your patience on my voice today. I am actually feeling better than I sound uh, and uh, feeling much better than when my grandchildren first brought this to us uh, over Christmas. <laughs> Many of you are suffering over the same head cold, and in which case I apologize. It's, uh, it's not a good one. But nevertheless, several people in our staff are also affected, and so I ask that you keep them in your prayers as well. Uh, Brianna, Michael, Agian, um, myself. It's going around. Therefore, I will not shake your hands as you go through the door on the way out any more than I shook your hands this morning uh, to greet you. It's really not a bad ritual for us to apply in the next few weeks overall, by the way. This morning's text comes to us from the Gospel of Luke. It's dealing with the Baptist, John the Baptist, who seems like we've been, we've been facing John the Baptist for about two months, which is actually true. We started with John the Baptist in Lent, and here we are again. It's the story of Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist at the River Jordan. It's from the third chapter of Luke, and I have pulled some passages or verses out of the passage, verses 15 through 16 and 21 through 22. May God give us an understanding of this word. As the people were filled with expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah... John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming, and I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, my Beloved, in whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. First thing you notice about this passage is how matter-of-fact it is. It's a nice and simple story of Jesus' baptism by John, who was out by the Jordan River, baptizing all the people who went out. Luke simply says that he was baptizing them with a baptism of water for forgiveness and the repentance of sins. And when Jesus stands up and stands in line to get baptized too, we are supposed to gasp. After Jesus comes up out of the water and is wiping his eyes, he has a prayer and then sees the heavens rent apart, literally break open, and, a holy, and the Holy Spirit swoop down like a dove and, and light upon him or with him or in him or on him. And then he hears the voice of God proclaim, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. 
Apparently, this baptismal event was a new birth for everyone. Their past life, their sins were being washed clean, and they were giving a new start on life. And for Jesus, at least symbolically, as far as we know, that was true for him too. But there was something else, of course, that set Jesus' baptism apart from everyone else, and that is this cosmic spiritual event and the voice of God that claims Jesus as his own For us to understand its meaning, we have to put it in context. The first contextual uh, sense of this is this comes, this passage comes immediately after the passage in Luke where Jesus is 12 years old. You know that story maybe that he's lost in the temple because he's dealing and sitting at the feet of the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious authorities and he's questioning them about the faith and he's learning from them. He's 12 years old, and apparently there must have been a large entourage because when his parents uh, leave the temple to go home, they don't know he is not with them. They discover halfway home, come back to get him, and find him again still sitting in the temple talking to the priest at 12 years old. The passage in Luke there ends with these words. Jesus increased in wisdom and in years and in divine and human favor. Which is to say that Jesus grew up just like the rest of us. Then, in Luke's story, 20-some years later, Jesus shows up as an adult at the Jordan River to be baptized by John the Baptist for the forgiveness of sins And we're supposed to ask why. This was in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I think, the moment of Jesus' adult coming out of his final complete awareness of what he is supposed to be when he grows up. Wait a minute, wouldn't he already know that? I mean... The wise men had come to his birth. The shepherds had proclaimed the angels' alleluias. Mary knew of his circumstances when being conceived. Wouldn't she have taught him that year after year? You are the son of God. What gives? This passage turns out to be not quite so simple or matter of fact after all. For in fact, this passage has served ever since the 4th century to be one of the primary passages for most of the church fights and conflicts that theologians and church priests and authorities continue to deal with. Why did Jesus get baptized in the first place? Did he have sins that needed to be washed? If it was a baptism of repentance, did Jesus need to repent too? Or why did God call Jesus out at this point, waiting till now to claim him as his son? Obviously, as I said, he should already know this. Gets even more complicated when we start looking at how the Holy Spirit works here. Ah, the Holy Spirit. It dives into things, including Jesus' moment after baptism. Where did it come from? Out of the heavens? 
didn't it come as pre-existent from God, or did it come only as something that God and Jesus left? Jesus said in John, I leave with you the counsel of the Holy Spirit. You will not be abandoned. Luke tells us at Pentecost that the Holy Spirit came then to birth the church. Now, what's it doing at this baptism? Lots of questions that always end up leading to church fight after church fight. Are two baptisms needed, water and Holy Spirit? And if Jesus is divine as we claim then what does he need the Holy Spirit for in the first place? Trinitarian formula tells us that they're all of one substance, so God doesn't, doesn't differ from Christ, doesn't differ from the Holy Spirit. They are one with three different homoousian substances. What is all this about? And as I said, this turns out to be the very genesis of the theological and religious and academic and philosophical authorities of the church way back, culminating, unfortunately, in the split in the 12th century between the Western Roman Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. It was supposedly a split over this issue of the Holy Spirit that proceeds from the Father and the Son. And the Son, in Greek, is the word philoque. We said in an Arsene Creed, the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, as if it comes after. But the Greek church, the Orthodox church, says no, that's trinitarily not true. So they leave out from the Son. That led to the split only there was something else going on. And what else was going on, of course, is what is always going on in church fights and splits and schisms, and that is that it was about property and power. There was a disagreement on where the church should find its base, in Rome or in Constantinople, which is now Istanbul. And so as much as the Holy Spirit leads them through this, it's also true that the power of human sin was invested as well about who was going to win this fight and where they were going to end up. And it's always nice in the middle of a property fight to have a little theological rationale to justify why you're angry. As I look back through the history of the church, I am saddened and frustrated by the insider fights of the religious hierarchy as they and we hammer out every little jot and tittle. How many angels can dance on the head of a pen? How many words of orthodoxy and words of order are needed? It wasn't too long ago that these words of orthodoxy were canon law and any disagreement meant severe punishment. For 1,500 years, until 200 years ago, thousands of people were burned 
at the stake for apparent heresies like monetism and patrianism or Sabellianism or docetism or Marcionism or a thousand other isms, each with a different slant on the nature of God or the Holy Spirit or Christ's humanity or divinity. The church, communion, baptism. In fact, as Protestants, we're heretics too, according to the Roman and Orthodox Church. Although, thanks to Saint, to, excuse me, John Paul II, we are material heretics, which says that we choose, no, we don't choose to be heretics, we are just not fully informed. If we were fully informed, then we would return to the true church. Since then, churches have split like biological cells in a Petri dish, morphing into their own interpretation of what is orthodox or right belief. Is God one or three? Was Jesus, son by, uh, was Jesus declared God's son by adoption or by creation? Did Jesus need to be baptized just like everyone else? Must you be dunked in order to have an effective baptism, or is sprinkling enough? What about infants? Should they be baptized? There's one sect that claims you have to be baptized in the river like Jesus was in order for it to be right. Not only dunked, but the river, which reminds me of a story. A staunchly teetotaling Baptist preacher stood up in the pulpit one day and said, If I had all of the beer in the world, I would pour it in the river. Everybody applauded. And then he said, If I had all the wine in the world, I would pour it in the river. And everybody now is in a frenzy clapping. <coughs> if I had all the whiskey in the world, I would pour it in the river. They all were now standing on their feet. At that point, the organist broke into the next hymn, which was, of course, Shall We Gather at the River? <laughs> I'm hoping to bring some humor into this, mainly because it's so painful. It's ironically painful because most of the conflict in the church happens to be over the issue of the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, whose job it is, is to reconcile and bring peace and community, happens ironically to be the very source of most of the church conflict between theologians and academicians and orthodoxy. I am glad that God is slow to lose patience. I'm not saying let's throw all orthodoxy out the window to throw the water out with the baptismal font. Some orthodoxy is needed. At the Arrow Seiko Worldwide Camp Meeting near Los Angeles in 1913, Canadian evangelist R.E. McAllister stated at a baptismal service that the apostles had baptized in the name of Jesus, not only 
that, but everyone who had been baptized in the name of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they didn't count. You got to come and be baptized again only in the name of Jesus. That night, a German immigrant by the, immigrant by the name of John Chaepe had a vision of Jesus in his dreams that the name of Jesus should be glorified. From that point on, you had to be baptized in the name of Jesus to be a member of the church. Orthodoxy is important. Yet ultimately, our theological arguments are not. They just are not. When we make them so, it is idolatry. Fifteen years ago, the Presbyterian Church came out with this big splash from uh, the General Assembly. Theology matters. Some of you may remember that. Theology matters. I love theology. I went to seminary because of theology. I chose Union Seminary because of theology. I took classes from John Leaf because of theology. I am seeped in theology. But it doesn't matter that much, folks. For my fear is that it is more about the professional guild of theologians and academicians than it is about you, the normal, everyday lay people, and that these theological fights and these church fights only end up causing an incredible amount of pain and suffering among the everyday folk who are just trying to be faithful Christians. With over 3,600 Protestant denominations growing exponentially every day, no wonder the millennial generation, those between 18 and 30, look at our institution as they now do our politics and say, why in the world would I want to be connected to that? To tell you the truth, I can't blame them. So let me return where I started, and that is with this passage. It seems so simple, yet in the hands of the religious authorities it becomes so complicated. Go with the simple. Go with the simple. Not easy, simple. And the simple interpretation is, according to Steve, you can take it or leave it is that Jesus chose to be baptized as another act of his solidarity with us as human beings. That somehow, in some way, that we do not nor will not as human beings ever understand the word of God, the love of God, became flesh in Jesus Christ. Became one of us, willing to be baptized like everyone else, to live like everyone else, to make sure that we know that God loves us, that we have been reconciled with God, that we have been forgiven of our sins, that we have been set free from all that binds us and bonds us, that we have been given this incredible gift of God's unconditional love, no matter what we believe or no matter what we do in our behavior. Get that? No matter what we believe or no matter what we do in our behavior, we still are loved unconditionally by God. 
That's what matters. And everything Jesus did was simply to proclaim that good news to everyone, not just those who could read Hebrew, not just to the men, not just to the free, to everyone. You are loved unconditionally by the ground of your being, by the very creator of your source. You are loved no matter what. And if we could just get that, we wouldn't be keeping score on who believes what and what theology actually is right. I get a little worked up. So in the end, what matters? That in Jesus Christ, God is reconciling the whole world to himself. It's not about the Trinity or the Holy Spirit, about anything else for that matter. It's not easy for us to understand it. And if we get this, you see, if we get this, we get this, then we have to respond. What we're called to do in our response is simply to return that love back to God, to love God, and to return it back to our neighbor. It's just that simple. Oh, yeah. By the power of the Holy Spirit, it can be.